Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be looking at 2 Nephi chapters 1 and 2. Now, in these chapters, we have Lehi talking to his sons, and he's going to be giving them some counsel. Chapter 1 begins with Lehi discussing that he's had a vision where he sees that Jerusalem has been destroyed. Now, you remember, they left Jerusalem back in 1 Nephi. And now, in 2 Nephi, Lehi's had this vision. They're in the Americas, and he tells his sons what he sees the land of the Americas will be. He sees that America will be a land of liberty unto everyone that will come and follow Christ. He says in verse 7 that this land is consecrated unto him whom he shall bring. And he discusses how those that keep the commandments will prosper in the land. Now, in the second chapter of Second Nephi, Lehi specifically speaks to Jacob. In my opinion, this chapter really is a landmark chapter because Lehi is offering Jacob and all of us an invitation to be beings who act and not those who are acted upon. He discusses the fall. Lehi even discusses this angel that falls from heaven that becomes the devil. And in this chapter, we have some foundational text that the fall, Adam and Eve partaking of the fruit, was part of the plan. He says in verse 22, if Adam had not transgressed, he would not have fallen. And because of this, all of these things have been done in the wisdom of him who knoweth all things. And then Lehi says in verse 25, Adam fell that men might be, and men are that they might have joy. And so from Lehi's perspective, and I think he's getting a lot of this from the brass plates, He's teaching Jacob that the fall was part of the plan. And this is one of the things that makes the doctrine of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints stand in contradistinction to so much that's going on in other religious traditions where a lot of blame is laid at the feet of Eve. You see, from Lehi's perspective, the fall was good. It was part of the plan. It was done in the wisdom of him who knoweth all things. And because we have fallen, Lehi says, we are free forever to know good from evil, to act for ourselves and not be acted upon. We are free to choose the great mediator of all men, to choose liberty instead of captivity. The truths that Lehi is discussing here really are monumental and help us to understand our place in the world and how the Savior is here to make us free and how the fall is part of God's plan. By the way, these chapters in 2 Nephi really are important because these are Lehi's last words to his descendants. He even speaks to Zoram. And so these few chapters in the beginning of 2 Nephi are really his last will and testament. It kind of reminds me of what's going on in Genesis 49. When Jacob gives blessings and counsel to his sons, this is similar to that. This is Lehi giving advice and, and teaching truths to his descendants right before he leaves this earth. But we also have other authors that are teaching in 2 Nephi. And so, Bryce, why don't you talk a little bit about the authors of 2 Nephi? 2 Nephi is written by four prophets. Lehi starts us off, 
Jacob is going to spend a lot of time, Isaiah is going to write a lot, and then Nephi is going to conclude. Turn to chapter 11. What do Nephi, Jacob, and Isaiah all have in common? Why is he going to quote Isaiah so much? Why is he going to quote his brother so much? Why is he going to speak himself? Well, verses 2 and 3, they are all eyewitnesses of Christ. They all know Christ. Now, he doesn't necessarily mention his father. He kind of does this later, earlier. But the four authors of 2 Nephi, Lehi, Jacob, Isaiah, and Nephi, are all eyewitnesses of the Savior and his character and who he is. And they're going to try in this book to change some of our misconceptions, our blind spots, our misunderstandings, so that we clearly see the Messiah and come unto him. That's what Second Nephi is all about. And we're going to deal with the blindnesses that Nephi saw in First Nephi. So that'll be kind of our context for going through Second Nephi. The blindness that the Jews had in the days of the Savior, where because they expected something else and they didn't see who he really was, because he wasn't what they expected, they rejected him. So one blindness that Nephi is aware of is sometimes we miss the, the Savior because he's not what we expect. He doesn't meet our expectations. So what we need to do is we need to clearly understand what is the Messiah going to do. So there's one blindness that Nephi saw in vision. And then he also recognizes that the Lamanites were blind and the Nephites were blind. And just like we talked about in our last podcast, Nephite blindness, when they got arrogant and proud, they didn't think they needed God. Nephite blindness is, I don't need him. Then Lamanite blindness is kind of an anger. They're so caught up in suffering and pain. It's not fair. It's not fair. And this, I don't deserve this, that they reject God because they're blinded by anger. Lamanite blindness is, I'm angry because I don't see his love. And then when the subject of the Gentiles came up, he saw that the Gentiles in our day, there's two Gentiles he addresses. The Gentiles in our day are blinded by the false religious ideas that blind them to truth that's right in front of them. Nephi will spend kind of the whole end of Second Nephi dealing with false churches and false religious ideas and how do we reject them. And then he also saw that there was a righteous group of Gentiles in the latter days who are faithfully going to follow the Savior, and they have to deal with all of the challenges of the latter day. So those seems to be Nephi's five main groups of people he's addressing. I like that, Bryce. I want to just add one thing. I think it's more than just that they've seen Jesus. I think what Nephi is trying to say is, we know Jesus. You can kind of see that common theme flowing throughout Nephi's writings. Good. So a lot of these chapters in Second Nephi, the front end, are going to be Lehi. Yeah. It's kind of the, the, so it's like start, the last will and testament of Lehi before right. he dies. Before I go out, I'm going to talk to each child, each group of people. So Lehi is going to tackle all these different groups. And so chapter one, he's going to speak to Laman and Lemuel. Chapter two, he's going to speak to his son, J- Jacob. Chapter three, he's going to speak to Joseph. And then chapter four, he's going to speak to Zoram and then his grandchildren. Now, what we don't have in here is what he says to Sam and Nephi. I don't know why they're not in there. Nephi chose not to include them. But I would suggest that the ones he's including are trying to correct those ideas of let's see the Messiah. So let's start with why were Laman and Lemuel blind and how that blindness is like our blindness in the latter days. And so chapter one is Lehi to Laman and Lemuel. So Mike, take it away. What do you see in chapter one? 
So I see a couple messages. One of them is that this idea that they're asleep. Several times he says, awake and arise. Anciently in the first temple, when Israel came to the temple, part of the drama was that the Israelites would rise and they would stand before God and make a covenant. And so if we read it this way, look what it says in verse 10. If the day will come that they will reject the Holy One of Israel, the true Messiah, their Redeemer, their Lord and their God, behold, the judgments of him that is just shall rest upon them. And so one of the messages here is that the Israelites or the Jews in Jerusalem rejected the Messiah and they lost the temple. They were destroyed. And I think Lehi is giving them a warning here. Look in verse 13. He wants them to awaken from a deep sleep and stand and arise. That's verse 14. That's verse 13. That's verse 21. And that's verse 23. It's just, and so in my scriptures, I literally have this stuff circled and I'm connecting this. And what does Lehi want them to do? In my mind, I picture this image in the ancient Near East, the king at the end of the drama would be embraced by the priest that represented God. The embrace was read in conjunction with Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, where the kings proclaimed a son of God. And the embrace was the ultimate symbol for the atonement. And so there's a lot of literature out there on how the atonement and the embrace are connected. And it's right here. It's all throughout the narrative. But look right here in verse 15. The Lord has redeemed my soul from hell. I have beheld his glory, and I am encircled about eternally in the arms of his love. I think Lehi is begging his sons to awake and arise and become true men, become kings. And that image is just a sacred, holy image. In fact, right in front of me, I have a picture of Lehi, and he's gathering his sons around him, and he's embracing them. And that's the image, Bryce, that I have of God. He wants us to come to him. Yeah. And here in chapter 1, there's a beautiful symbolism. See, Laman and Lemuel are like you and I rejecting Nephi. So sometimes we're angry at God like Laman and Lemuel were angry at Nephi. So this is that Lamanite blinders. This and, is so good. Yeah. Look at verse 24. Yeah. And so all of a sudden it's like, okay, guys, so everything he's going to say to Laman and Lemuel about Nephi really is, I think Nephi's including this to say, hey, those of you that live in the latter days, you're doing the same thing with Christ that Laman and Lemuel did with Nephi. You're angry at Christ because, A, look at this list here. This is so brilliant. Go ahead. Yeah. So look at verse 24. Re- rebel no more against your brother whose views have been glorious, who's been an instrument in the hands of God. In other words, those of you in the latter days, you're angry at God— You're angry at Christ, whose views have been glorious. He's been just trying to teach you the word of God. Look at verse 25. He has sought the glory of God and your own eternal welfare. People who love you correct you. People who truly love you want what's best for you and are going to teach you how to change. Well, that made Laban and Lemuel angry at Nephi, and it makes us angry at God. So verse 26, don't be mad that he uses sharpness. Don't be mad that the Lord points out your flaws and wants you to change. Don't be mad if the if your life is trying to help you to overcome your weaknesses. Don't be mad at Nephi because he's trying to make you better people. Don't be mad at God because he loves you enough to try and change you. He's going to speak with sharpness. He's going to use the Holy Ghost. He's going to say things that maybe you don't want to hear. And by the way, how you respond 
is the answer. That's right. We're all going to have the problems, but at the end of the day, how you respond to Christ, or in Laman and Lemuel's terms, how they respond to the king, which is going to be Nephi, is going to determine everything. And Bryce, I keep seeing this, and I keep pounding this, and I don't think it's in here by coincidence. The promise is seed. We're back to this temple notion. Seed, posterity. Your decisions affect people not yet born. And how you respond to Jesus is going to have eternal implications. And that's the, the biblical term for this is seed, but we're talking fertility, but I'm not talking about plants. We're talking about people. So go back to verse 21. He says to Laman and Lemuel, be men, rise up from the dust and be men. So here's a beautiful image of how we're supposed to respond to the correcting hand of God. So the way they should have responded to Nephi is the way you and I should respond to God when his only desire is to bless our lives and make us better people. We need to be men, notice in verse 21, determined in one mind and in one heart, united in all things. So I've thought a lot about what does it mean to be one? And I remember asking a group of teenagers, what does it mean that your parents are one? And they said, well, it means if you ask the one, they'll say the same thing that the other one will say. You know, if, if mom doesn't want you to go to the movie, then dad won't want you to go to the movie either. And then I asked the question, what does it mean if you and your mom and your dad are one? And they rolled their eyes like, well, then you just don't even ask. Well, why don't you ask? Because you know what they're going to say. And I said, is that oneness with mom and dad? Just because you can anticipate what they're going to say, are you one with mom and dad? If you are one with mom and dad, why don't you ask? And all of a sudden, one girl realized, because you want for yourself what mom and dad want for you. Boom, there it is. Now you're one with God. Yeah, that's it. When you want for you what God wants for you, You're one with God. So the plea here with Nephi and with all of us, or sorry, Laman and Lemuel, the plea here is be one with God. Want for yourselves what God wants for you. So verse 23, put on the armor of righteousness. Shake off the chains with which you are bound. It's almost That's like, all God wants. Take off the garments of the world and yeah. put on the robe of light. Because it's not going to make you happy. Yeah. There's no chain that's going to make you happy. Take off the chains. What God wants to give me is better than anything I want instead. Let's talk about this. What do you think as a parent? Because you're a parent. Yeah. You know a little bit about kids. I think maybe you've had a couple children, and I've had a couple children, and I've been a child. So here's my question. How... As a parent, how do you do this? Because can you sense Lehi? He's just like, guys, seriously, like you're messing up. It's so hard. We we were planning on talking about this, but I'm just like, as Bryce is talking, I'm like, okay, wait, stop. Let's do some practical rubber hitting the road. How do you do this? I want to hear your take, and then I'll give you mine, which they're probably going to be different. What do you think? How do you help a child know that what I want for you is your happiness? And what I'm trying to do is bring about your happiness. But children often think my way is better. My way is better than mom's way, than dad's way. And it's really hard when they stubbornly hold to that. And I don't know that there's a magic wand that simply says, wake up. But that magic day when the child realizes, oh, my goodness, my mom wanted what was best for me. And then all of a sudden there's that acceptance and that friendship. And then it's love. I I taught a student 
who got involved in drugs and his mom sent him to rehab. And he confessed to me, I hated my mom. I hated my mom. I was so mad at her. And then he started to weep. But now I realize no one loved me more than she did. I don't know that there's a magic way to take that blinder off other than love and care and taking time with a child. Nephi wanted for Laman and Lemuel what was best for them. God wants for us what is best for us, but sometimes we're stubborn children and we think my way is the best way. You know, I got to say this, Bryce, I've had, you know, I've had one of my children who was very much, I know what I'm doing. And he and I butted heads. And it wasn't until I kind of relaxed and let go. He's kind of like the apostle Paul. Like if you've read about Paul before he became Paul, he was just pretty much, he had his fist tightened and he was just like, I'm doing this. And I think sometimes that child that's very stubborn and strong-willed can be one of the greatest tools of God. Once you kind of channel that power, I think this is what you're saying, Bryce. I'm going to read this and I want your take on this too. It's section 121 and it's about how we should exercise power and authority. And I see kind of Lehi doing this, but we don't have the whole record, so we don't really know. But in section 121, like, how do we deal with this? And the Lord says, you know, we've learned by sad experience that pretty much people get power to their head, and that's not a good thing. And then he says in verse 41, no power influence ought to be maintained by virtue of this priesthood, only by persuasion and long suffering. And then go to verse uh, 45. Let thy bowels be full of charity towards all men and to the household of faith and let virtue garnish thy thoughts unceasingly. And then you're going to have the Holy Ghost. Go to verse 46. The Holy Ghost shall be thy constant companion and thy scepter, an unchanging scepter of righteousness and truth and thy dominion, children, dominion. If you're a king and a queen, the dominion are the subjects. If a family is a kingdom, your children shall be an everlasting dominion. We're back to seed. And without compulsory means, it, the children, will flow into thee forever and ever. And I think there's something about that. God has all this power. And maybe, I did not know we were going to talk about this, Bryce, but maybe this flows right into 2 Nephi 2 and some of this other stuff is, who is God? And what kind of being is he? And I think as a father, I just can't compel my kid. I can't force him to get religion. I can't force him to love his mom. I can't. And I think that's the delicate balance of how to be a parent. And I just empathize with Lehi, I guess is what I'm trying to say. But there's a great message. You can see that from so many perspectives. You can look at this and say, sometimes we're Lehi trying to get his children to wake up and see, but often we're Laman and Lemuel, yeah, and yeah. we're the blind ones, and we're stubbornly saying, oh, I hate when God tells me what to do. I hate all these commandments, and I hate all these restrictions, yeah. until we realize this really is Heavenly Father trying to say, I want you to be happy, and here's how to be happy. And the sad thing is Isaiah tells a story that, hey, if you resent God, if you resent the wall that he put up to protect you from the enemy, he'll tear the wall down and the enemy will come and destroy you. I can totally see why Nephi throws this chapter in because in the latter days, so many people are angry at God because he's doing something for their benefit that they don't like and they're angry, which now leads us to chapter two because one of the reasons we're angry at God is because of the environment he set up. It's not fair. Why it doesn't am I in this make sense? Messed up world. It's yeah. so messed up. This world doesn't make sense. I have a hard time seeing the love of God in this world where there's so much 
pain and suffering and opposition. And so now we're going to throw in chapter two where Lehi says, okay, guys, this is why the world is messed up. Let's see God and his purposes and why this world is messed up. So that's 2 Nephi chapter 2. So we're in this world of oppositions. We're in this world where we can't do it by ourselves. I love verse 8. No flesh can dwell in the presence of God, save it be through the merits, mercy, and grace of the holy Messiah who layeth down his life according to the flesh. And why? To bring to pass the resurrection of the dead. That is um, Lehi's testimony. That's my testimony. None of us are going to make it. I love Bryce verse 3. Yeah. It gives me so much hope because I see all my faults and I see all the times I mess up as a father and as a teacher. I love where it says, Lehi says, wherefore I know, verse 3, that thou art redeemed because of the righteousness of thy redeemer. He doesn't say, Jacob, I know you're redeemed because you're such a good kid, because you got straight A's, because you don't break the law of Moses. He says, I know you're going to make it because I've seen Jesus. And I just want to add my testimony to that. If you believe in Jesus and you hitch your wagon to him, he'll get you there. Yeah. I just and, That's powerful. And here's how he's going to get you there. So let me just give a brief overview of 2 Nephi chapter 2, okay? God is a being that acts. He has freedom to act. Freedom, eternally and earthly, comes from the right use of agency. You'll never gain freedom until you make a right choice. Captivity comes from the wrong use of agency. Now, in order for men to have agency, they have to have the power to choose, which is made possible by opposition. And some choices are right and some choices are wrong. And the way we know the difference is by the law. The law tells us which choices are right and which choices are wrong. And Lehi is going to say there must be an enticement. You need to be enticed to do both good and evil in order to truly have a choice. Well, this whole environment of law and choice and opposition is made possible because of the fall. And the fall brought to pass an environment in which we could choose. Now, in that environment of choosing, wrong choices are going to be part of the program. And so to overcome their captivity, Christ was sent to atone for our mistakes. And because of the atonement, men are now free to choose for themselves. That's the structure. Yep. God is a being of agency. Agency requires choice, opposition, law, enticement. The fall made that environment possible. So don't curse God that we live in a fallen world. It's part of the plan. And when we make wrong choices, the atonement is going to remove the captivity. Therefore, the summary here is in verse 27, because of all these things, because of the fall, because of the creation, because of atonement, because of agency, you are now free to choose. So use your agency to gain freedom so that we can eventually have the happiness that God has. And we'll put a really nice chart out there in the show notes where you can see everything Bryce is talking about. I think if you're a teacher, it's just a really good chart on how agency works. Bryce, I just think this is brilliant structurally. Yeah. Explaining like the nature of reality. I mean, some people spend their lives reading philosophy and you, you just get into Second Nephi 2 and there's so many theological and philosophical boxes that are being checked off in Lehi's discussion about the nature of the universe and where this is coming from and you know who do we blame opposition on and why are we here? And it's just really good. And I really like how his whole logic, I love the verse 13, the logic here. He says, if there's no law, then there's no sin. And if there's no sin, there's no righteousness. And if there's no righteousness, 
then there's no happiness. And if there's no righteousness or happiness, then there's no punishment or misery. And if these things are not, there is no God. So Lehi's just walking you through some of these logical hoops about Life. Life. Yeah. yeah. So let me even interpret that in practical words. If there weren't something telling you right from wrong, then you couldn't choose. If you can't choose, you'll never gain freedom. Yes, you can avoid captivity, but you'll never gain freedom. Therefore, all of God's purposes are null and void because you cannot gain the freedom that God himself has, the freedom to create worlds, the freedom of happiness that he has. So if you don't have law... Nothing exists. You have to have a source that says this is the right choice and that's the right wrong choice. So all of these things that people criticize, well, I'm angry that there's opposition. I'm angry that people are enticed to do wrong. I'm angry that people have freedom to choose. Everyone says, I want to be able to choose, but I don't want anyone else to be free to choose. And the Lord says, no, everyone's free to choose, which means their bad choices may have a harmful effect on you. But here's why men can choose. This is an absolutely brilliant chapter to explain the purposes of God. Those of you who are rejecting God because you misunderstand how he's running the program need to understand the program. You need to understand agency and what agency costs us. You need to understand law and the role that law plays in agency. You need to understand enticement. You need to understand opposition. If there were no opposition, there is no happiness. And so I just love that this is another blinder we're checking off because Nephi saw that a lot of people are blind to God because he's not the God they want him to be. I want a God that lets me choose but doesn't let anyone else choose. I want a God that gives me the freedom to do what I want, but restricts other people's freedom so they can't hurt me. And such a God doesn't exist. And so we have to understand and clearly see who is God and what are his purposes in terms of granting all men agency. In literature of you know this time period, there's basically two reasons— why evil exists in the world. If you if you study Judaism or some of this early Enoch literature, and there's a lot of scholars that write about this. One of my favorites is Michael Heiser. And Michael Heiser, not LDS, but he's written some really good books. One's called The Unseen Realm. Another one's called Reversing Hermone. And he talks about the tradition that the Christian uh, churches, that in Christianity we don't really hammer on, in, in on, was this rebellion in the heavens. And that that's Genesis 6. Uh, the one we usually hammer on is the fall you know, Adam and Eve in the fall. And what's interesting to me is Lehi says in verse 17 of the second chapter, he says, um, I, Lehi, according to the things which I have read, must needs suppose that an angel of God, according to that which is written, has fallen and become the devil. So, he, you know, he hasn't had it as a vision necessarily, but he says, I'm learning this from the brass plates. And then in the 18th verse, he's going to call him that old serpent who's the devil. In Christianity today, we call him Satan. But, you know, whatever you want to call him, Lehi says there is one of the reasons for evil. But notice how he undoes the fall. And Bryce, I think this makes us distinct from our other Christian friends because of the Book of Mormon, because of Lehi's understanding of the brass plates. He doesn't castigate Eve. He doesn't throw her under the bus. He says, no, Eve was doing a good thing in the sense of, well, if there was no fall, verse 23, there would have been no children. And so, you know, verse 25, Adam fell that men might be. So he sees this as a necessary thing. If you want to look at this big picture, Bryce, I think that as a metaphor, the fall would be a great story about us. Let's read Adam and Eve as our story. And we consciously chose 
to come to this earth, and it's a good thing. It's good that we're here. See, a lot of people think that if they had not partaken of the tree, they stay in the Garden of Eden. Their life is peaceful and and wonderful, and the reality is wrong. The fall was part of the plan all along because look very carefully at verse 23. They were not happy in Eden. They weren't. They were in a state of innocence, having no joy, for they knew no misery, doing no good, for they knew no sin. Adam never woke up and said, what a beautiful day it is. As compared to what? He didn't have any. That's why we needed opposition. They would not have been happy in Eden. As much as we long for an Edenic state and we long for all of our problems to go away in a world that doesn't have thorns and noxious weeds and challenges, we're trying, Lehi's trying to say, no, you don't get it. Such a world would not make you happy because there's no agency in that world. There's no ability to choose if there's no opposition. And so they had to fall in order to create this mortal state in which they could have children, they could know, they could experience, they could be tempted. They had to have opposition. An interesting word I want to talk about, too, with, with, that goes with that, Bryce, is verse uh, 18, where it says, the devil came to them and said, at the very end of the verse, it says, ye shall be as God, knowing good and evil. And then in the 26th verse, They're redeemed from the fall. They have become free forever. And then here's the phrase, knowing good from evil. And I really like, that's just that word, good and evil versus good from evil. And I don't remember the talk, Bryce, maybe you do, but I remember it was Elder Oaks and he was just talking about his dad and he he was a young man and he said, dad, I want to, you know, I want to try, you know, what would it be like if I tried alcohol? And his dad's like, well, you don't want to do that. And he's like, well, I don't, I don't know what it tastes like. Remember that story? And his dad pulls over and there's a cow patty and he says, why don't you go get some of that cow patty and eat it? And young Down H. Oaks is like, I don't need to eat that. And he's like, well, why not? You've never tasted it. And the message was essentially, you don't need to eat a cow patty to know that it's bad. And I like that right in this text, just a subtle word, how the adversary, he takes a true sentence and he just kind of tweaks one word just a little bit. I love Second Nephi chapter 2. Great commentary. Again, do you see the blinder that Nephi's trying to correct? Don't be blind to God because the world in which we live isn't what you expect it to be. Sometimes people think this world doesn't reflect a loving God because there's opposition. Wrong. This world does reflect a loving God because there's opposition. No other way could you be happy. And so we're correcting that false idea that opposition is an evidence that God doesn't exist. No, opposition is required for agency, which is the only way we can truly be happy and be like God is if we learn to act for ourselves. So I got one more thing on this chapter. There's so much, but one more thing. What is a happy person, a being who acts and is not acted upon? And I think this is also portrayed in the lives of Nephi versus his brothers. Nephi's acting and his brothers are being acted upon. And so I want to geek out just for a second on the name of God, Exodus 3.13, where Moses says, okay, Lord, you you want me to go to the Israelites? What am I going to tell them is your name? And then there's this really strange verse in the English King James Bible in Exodus 3.14, where he says, well, go and tell them that my name is I am that I am. And I remember as a young man reading that going, I don't even know what in the heck is that even saying? And I, as I've grown and gotten into, you know, some books and been a little bit nerdy. So this is a really good book by uh, Frank Moore Cross. And he says this, he's trying, he's a Bible scholar. He's trying to uh, figure out what is this? And he says, the accumulated evidence strongly supports the view that the name Yahweh, 
is a causative imperfect of the Canaanite proto-Hebrew verb hue, which is to be. Therefore, the divine name Yahweh, according to this view, literally means he who causes to be, or even he who creates. What he's saying in, the, in this, there's a lot more to unpack here, but what he's saying is, is I am that I am, is he believes that is where Yahweh comes from. That phrase in Exodus 3.14 is not Yahweh. That phrase, it's complicated, but it means perhaps I am that I am, or I will be who I will be, or I will cause what I will cause to be. The Bible scholar Christine Hayes says, we really don't know what it is, but it has something to do with being. So then Moses says, well, what are you? And God says, I am who I am, or I will cause to be what I will cause to be. And so Moses, wisely enough, she says, converts that into a third person formula. Okay, he will be who he will be. He is who he is. Yahweh, Asher Yahweh. God's answer to the question of his name is this sentence, and Moses converts it from a first person to a third person sentence. He will be who he will be. He is who he is, or he will cause to be. And she goes on, and I'll put this in the show notes. But my point is, and this is where I think the Book of Mormon does this beautifully, it's such a complex concept of the name of God, and he has lots of names, but the concept of his name is packaged throughout Nephi's narrative. Nephi is just screaming, let me show you who God is. He puts you in this realm of opposition, and even the hero has to get tied up on a boat. In other words, none of us are going to make it through without pain. And throughout the whole thing, Nephi's trying to say, do you want to be happy? You need to be someone who causes to be. Don't react through your whole life. Go out and just I say this to my boys all the time. You take the bull by the horns and you tell it where it's going. Anyway, I love this. Sorry, that's my geek out moment on this chapter. I really think this is about being happy and we can't be victims. We can't just be playing, you know, woe is me. We've got to act. God is a being that acts. He is not acted upon. He acts. And, And the moment we own that and move towards that, when we become beings that act, and are not acted upon, then we are beginning our progression to becoming like him. In, in whatever way I can, and in the frailties of my testimony, I just want to bear witness that there's power in these words, and they have perpetual relevance, and it's worth the time it takes to talk about it with your kids and in your wards. And with that, have a wonderful week. We'll see you next time. If you like this video, be sure to subscribe. And if you haven't already, go check out our YouTube channel called Talking Scripture. On that channel, Bryce and I have been working on some new video content. These new videos are in addition to the regular podcasts that Bryce and I do together and supplements to your Come Follow Me study. And we'll leave a link in the description. Once again, thanks for joining us and make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.